Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line from the Washington Post... Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I got to say, it's been a very reflective week for me over here. I recently officially switched from white bread uh, to wheat bread. I've been helping my, oh, wow. I know, I've been helping my, my condolences. parents, uh, you know, plan their 40th wedding anniversary. It's the kind of, you know, I also started uh, listening, like for real listening to audiobooks, which I think is going to automatically... <laughs> turn my hair gray. So clearly there's the passage of, of time element at work here and just got me thinking sort of big picture about, you know, humanity and and all these kinds of topics. And I also was working on two stories this week where it was the same deal where I, I kept thinking like, man, the NBA is its own planet, like all by itself in terms of the wealth, the money that's at stake. But at the same time, there's these human impulses that still uh, kind of pierce through the NBA uh, that are just undeniable. So <laughs> Wednesday night, I was at a mega church, uh, the Crenshaw Christian Center. They basically have services for like 10,000 people. I mean, they've got enough, you know, parking lot. It's like a stadium parking lot around uh, this dome where they broadcast. And okay. I was there because Alan Crabb, you know, the Nets wing, uh, was basically raised there. Like his grandfather was one of the pastors. His uncle's the current pastor. Uh, he went to school at this Christian school that's sort of on the grounds of this big complex. And it's like right in the middle of Los Angeles, you know, not the not the best neighborhood necessarily. Uh, yeah. But Alan Crabb's in a situation where what do we know him for? His contract, right? Four years, $75 million. There's that famous summer of 2016 where blog boys everywhere could just get the takes off about, look, that's a, you know, signing grade F overpay. This is a guy who's not going to be starting. This is a guy who's, uh, you know, never going to be a top three option. Why are you paying him almost $20 million a year? I mean, that's sort of, I think, what his reputation is a little bit. Um, Can I tell you one thing on that front? Yes, of course. During that summer, all I wanted to do was write an article about Alan Crabb's contract with the headline, Crabb's Cake. Okay. And yet, <laughs> I couldn't come up with anything interesting enough or anything that wasn't just like overtly mean about Alan Crabb. So I didn't actually write the article, but I always have that headline. So maybe if he signs another deal in the future, we can go back to it. Well, I think I'm pretty confident he's never going to sign another deal like that, right? And <laughs> I think it's a good example here, Andrew, of, you know, sometimes ideas are worth a column and sometimes ideas are worth a tweet and sometimes ideas are just worth putting on a podcast three years later. And I think exactly, <laughs> exactly. it's for the best. I think you nailed that one. <laughs> but the reason why I tell this whole buildup here is because, I mean, it was almost a punchline, right? Like there were so many bad summer, uh, contracts that summer. We've been over a bunch of them, you know, Jan Mahimi and so forth. Uh, that uh -huh. that sort of came to define him, right? But all of that wealth wound up being, or not all of it, but a, a big chunk of it, a mid six figure chunk of it, is now being you know funneled back to this school where he grew up, and basically forty something teachers would have been out of a job, a hundred plus kids who go to this school that basically goes from kindergarten up through high school would not have had the private high school to go to if Alan Crabb hadn't stepped up and made this huge donation to basically kind of save this place and keep its doors open for another year. And look, they're still yeah. in like a funding crisis. They're trying to figure out because they can't really raise tuition because the, can't, the families can't afford it. And yet uh, they have this incredible track record of success in terms of getting kids into college. And if not for the, sort of this benefactor, Alan Crabb deciding like, look, I grew up here. I should basically step up and do this. 
uh, all these kids and all these teachers wouldn't have a job. So that was one example of sort of just like that natural humanity, that human impulse to like take care of the people who took care of you uh, that kind of shone through into this NBA universe. Well, and by the way, I mean, that's one of the coolest parts about following the league closely is, you know, every team has stories like Alan Crabb and like that church, um, or is it a church or a school or both? Both. Yeah. So it starts as a church, but they've got this school and they actually turned it into a real basketball powerhouse for about 10 years there. And, and Crabb was sort of the tail end of it. Um, but it's, you know, the gym, (laughs) this is hilarious. The actual, uh, gym activity center is named for billy blanks you know the guy who like came up with tybo so he's got like the title name on the gym right <laughs> and now the, yeah and now the court is alan crab court right so it's like he's in you know this illustrious uh conversation of uh you know fellow benefactors yeah well so jokes aside though because i'd say 80 to 90 percent of our podcast is like snarky bs or us talking about why team x is never going to win a title or this or that you know it's like typical internet fair like one of the best parts about really following the, the nba is stories like alan crab and um and i think all sports have stories like that where you see guys make it big and use that success to transform not only their own lives but the the lives of a number of people around them um and, you know, they use basketball rather than being used by the game. Yeah. And, and probably, wouldn't you say more than other leagues, too? Because how many leagues can like a role player get an $80 million basically guaranteed contract, right? Like that's not happening in yeah. the NFL. That's not happening in some other sports. And so uh, I think that was one aspect of it. But the second story that I was working on that was also kind of reminding me of sort of this base level of humanity was this feature I did on Doc Rivers. Uh, to me, Doc is the single best coach in terms of media relations in the entire league. He's candid. He's interesting. He's seen everything. He's a little bit manipulative. He's got a little bit of that Magic Johnson gene where like, he can really spin whatever he wants to spin. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's, under, it's gone a little bit um, underappreciated just the the nature of how his job has changed these last couple of years, because he came in that wave with guys like Thibodeau, Stan Van Gundy, who were trying to follow the pop model, right? Like you get to be coach, uh, but you also get to be president of basketball operations. So you get the money, you get the power, you get the respect, you get everything. You're the face of everything. You get to make the decisions. And Doc had that stripped away from him in 2017, right? And for a coach who I would consider to be one of the top five most respected coaches in the league, like that's no small slight, right? Like that's, you know, a pretty big deal symbolically. And frankly, it was earned, right? Like it was just was not working. I mean, his roster moves, his, uh, you know, focus on veterans, his, you know, not real interest in developing young players or keeping draft picks or, you know, kind of trying to make things work. Like he deserved to lose that job, but Doc has really remade himself these last couple of years. And in the piece, I kind of touch on this, but he's basically feeling re- uh, rejuvenated as a coach. Yeah. He's much happier. He's recommitting to his craft, but he's also now allowed himself to look back at his own actions and to actually be honest and frank about it. And what he wound up uh, you know, doing after years of being in denial about this is kind of taking accountability for some of the things that critics were coming after him about. He said they hung on to the Chris Paul and Blake Griffin core too long. He said that it was simply too much work for him to handle. 
that, you know, trying to do both jobs was just basically making him miserable because he's trying to watch college tape during the middle of the season when he's also trying to prepare for, uh, you know, the next night opponent and, and all of those things. And you could understand like kind of human to human, what's that like? I mean, we all know that feeling of being burned out. And so it was just one of those situations where I started to think like, you know, yes, Doc is this sort of like mythic figure in the NBA. Uh, He is incredible at kind of spinning his version of events. Uh, And we saw that with how he handled the Lakers rumors this week and his extension and all of that. Um, But he's also still just a human being, right? And he was a human being who was overworked, who had to swallow his pride and say, look, go ahead and take this title with me. And then also be committed enough to his organization to make it functional going forward. I mean, think about how many ways that situation could have gone wrong. He could have felt resentment towards Lawrence Frank, who stepped into that position. He could have just said, look, I need to have power no matter what. And he could have chased another job. Um, He could have been in a situation where... Uh, he was so annoyed by losing it that he didn't put his full effort into actually coaching the team because he felt like, oh, you know, I'm just a, a lame duck here. You know, they may just fire me here in a couple years anyways. Um, uh-huh. All of those things were very reasonable and could have happened. And I think it's much more common for situations like Thibodeau or Van Gundy where it's like, OK, once it doesn't work, clean break. We just got to get out and move on. And the fact that he's been able to kind of get himself into this coach of the year talk, and I don't think he should win it, but you know he deserves some mention here to get the Clippers back into the playoffs. I think it's a inc- uh, pretty incredible personal story. And um, as he was laying out some of these dynamics in his life, I found myself, you know, it's almost like talking person to person. It's like hearing, you know, talking to you or talking to one of my family members or talking to a friend who's going through a, a tough patch at work. It was like that same right. kind of com- conversation. And then you realize he's working for a guy who's worth $40 billion, who's, you know, shelling out gobs and gobs of money for him to continue to be the coach of the Clippers, right? So I don't know exactly what my, my larger takeaway point here is, Andrew. Mostly just no, that, I like, like it. there are human beings here in the NBA, even at the very highest level. Um, and it was just one of those weeks where it's like, okay, you know, I, I, I feel like I can relate to these people, whether it's Alan Crabb or, or Doc Rivers, you know, the, the desire to take care of your family, the desire to find fulfillment at work uh, in a way that maybe I didn't previously. No, I, I like it. A little change of pace for us here to just take a look around at the human tapestry that is the NBA. And I, <laughs> it sounds so I much honestly... more ridiculous when you say, it, cause you're just not earnest, Andrew, come on. No, I identify with it a lot because I'm working on a story of my own with a player who is sort of in the middle of the league, maybe in the bottom tier. Um, and I think among the players, there are a lot of just really cool stories around the league. And, um, my reaction to what you said about Doc is twofold, I think. I mean, and I was having this conversation with someone earlier in the week. One of the things that's remarkable about the NBA is you talk to some of the guys in front offices, and they are very, very smart and um, interesting and interested in stuff beyond basketball. You know, like they, they have big lives and um, and a lot of interesting things to say about the world, which certainly is not true in a lot of other sports. Um, but my takeaway there is that, you know, you can't really half-ass a front office job. Right. And, and that's like they, they work really hard. They think outside the box. And it's very difficult to have one foot in that world and then one foot trying to make it work with, you know, Big Baby Davis and Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan and Chris Paul. Like, that's just really, really hard to do. And in retrospect, it's kind of amazing that anyone ever thought it was going to work with Stan Van Gundy and Doc and whoever else. 
Um, but those guys so, wanted it. It was their ambition that kind of drove it, right? And that and that's what's so fascinating is because there is a real uh, arc for Doc. Like he comes into uh, California in 2013 is like, I'm the man, right? I'm coming off this Boston thing. Uh, they had to trade a first round pick to get me. Like I'm this commodity. I'm untouchable. I'm coach of the year in the past. Like, you know, I'm that guy. Right. And he was humbled. I mean, I think that's the well, best way to put it. Is like, you know, when you, when you can't get over that hump, when you can't make the Western Conference Finals, that's not only painful for Chris Paul and Blake Griffin to go through, but that had had to just be excruciating for Doc to go through. Uh, and you know, one thing that I came out kind of admiring him about was he really stood up for his players publicly during that stretch. And then he tells me, you know, this week. Look, I had serious chemistry concerns about our team going all the way back to 2014 when the Clippers lost to the Thunder. And it's like, wow. So he just basically spent three straight years with a straight face standing up for his guys, even though he had the exact same doubts that all the critics did. Yeah, and the Clippers lost to the Thunder is one NBA kind of watershed moment over the last 10 years that we don't talk enough about. Like we talk a lot about the Warriors come back in game six against OKC, but like that Clippers collapse and particularly that final 90 seconds Chris Paul had oh. in, I believe game five, like it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen in the playoffs. Wait, let me ask so you that. I don't when you watch Doc that for coming away, just like, I don't know, like, <laughs> that would, that would create some doubt in me if I were the coach. Yeah. It would leave some scars too. Right. But like, let me ask you when you watch video of that, like going back, I'm sure you've probably seen it on YouTube. Like it's hard to watch, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's like, for me, I was watching that uh, Theranos documentary last night um, uh-huh. And they have, for whatever reason, they have these like slow motion, like needles into the skin, drawing blood, like montages. And I basically just had to close my eyes. <laughs> I just couldn't take it. It's like, why are you doing this? And and I'm a little bit finicky around needles or whatever. But for them yeah, to like so put that, my wife. yeah, for them to put that on the screen for like 30 seconds straight, it's just a terrible idea. I don't know why they did that. But um, uh-huh. that's how I feel about watching that Chris Paul meltdown was my point. Yeah, well, and, and I felt the exact same way because I was like a, a Chris Paul evangelist. And then, it, so that's the thing. It's like Doc talks about chemistry concerns after that series. Like, I'm sure the chemistry concerns were there and were well-founded. But I also came away being like, you know, Chris Paul might just be wound a little bit too tight for some of this. And this might be a Chris Paul issue mm. more than a Clippers issue. Um, but I'm sure there were a number of, issues that Doc was kind of juggling throughout those years. And that would be the last thing I wanted to say. And and one of the thoughts I had reading your piece is that, you know, it's not just that Doc was juggling multiple roles. Um, I've talked to guys who were on that team at the end. And, you know, Doc was kind of out to lunch by, by the end of those Lob City teams. And, um, and you know, he was playing golf a lot. He, like, they... The practices were scheduled at convenient times for Doc. And and just from what I've heard, it seemed like he had one foot out the door as well. And then I think one of the coolest stories of the this Clippers resurgence has been like Doc connecting with these new players and kind of rediscovering how much fun this can be and and reinvesting in just coaching and um I think part of that is probably taking some of the other responsibilities off his plate, but part of it is a credit to the guys they brought in and how much fun it is for Doc. Cause you can see, you can see him on the sidelines, like 
he's loving every second of this stuff. Um, yeah. And that's as incredible a story to me as anything else. I mean, aside from the job responsibilities, it's like coaching Patrick Beverly and Montrez Harrell has like reminded him why he loves this job. Right, exactly. That goes back to the human element of like, he's been coaching for 20 years, right? Obviously, some of yeah. those years are going to be better than any others. It's the same thing for us writing. We could say this year was better for our production or for our headlines or whatever than maybe a year, three, four years ago, right? I mean, that's just only natural. There's going to be ups and downs. I don't get it twisted though, Andrew. I think there's still a lot of golf going on. You know, I don't, I don't want to like <laughs> play that up, but I, I did ask okay. him, I asked him about his relationship with uh, Jerry West. He's like, look, I can get Jerry anytime because we're both at the golf club. Jerry plays cards. I play golf. I can see him whenever I need to pick his brain. I know exactly where he'll be. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. doc, I see how it is. There you go. There was some grumbling that I encountered like toward the end when people People weren't sure whether the Clippers were going to come back. And people were like, well, you know, we're all kind of out on dock, too. And so it's for the best that those teams broke up. I think everybody was tired of each other by the end. For sure. But um, real quick on just to tie this off, you know, Doc Rivers Mm -hmm. came out real forcefully. I believe it was Tuesday night before the Indiana Pacers game. And he basically shot down the Lakers rumor like as hard as you possibly (laughs) could shoot it down. I was going to bring that up too. It was like an extra win for the Clippers this week. So yeah, he just basically says, look, I'm friends with Magic, but you know, they have a coach. I have a job. You know, I've been talking to Steve Ballmer and we're going to redo my contract, you know, officially agree to a, a longer extension with no opt out. And, you know, basically just went out of his way to just mow down the idea that he would ever go coach the Lakers. And mm-hmm. again, this is the human element. Watching the faces of the people who work for the Clippers Hearing Doc say those words so forcefully, you could tell it really mattered to them. Uh, I mean, there was a little pep in everybody's step after the fact of like, whoa, like he really just did that. And keep in mind, the Clippers are this little brother organization still, right? They've been better than the Lakers for six straight years now. They've killed them in head-to-head matchups. They've made the playoffs. The Lakers haven't. But none of that really matters to kind of the casual fans in LA um, or the wider basketball experience. So to hear like Doc, again, one of these you know highly re- uh, respected coaches and figures in the league, just basically going to bat for them and just like, you know, throwing it in the Lakers face. I can't tell you how much they enjoyed that, Andrew. Like you could just, it was just totally. like oozing off of them. And, you know, this is going to be an interesting situation for them because they have real cute story potential, right? Like they could run into the Warriors in the first round and it could be over in four games really quick. And then all the stuff that we're saying about how great their season was now is going to look a little bit different, right? Um, Uh But I think to have that moment, you know, and to have that kind of pledge from Doc of saying, hey, I'm going to be here. I'm bought in. Let's keep this thing going for as long as we can do it. I think it matters for them now. And I think it also helps them heading into this summer because, the one thing I can't shake is, you know, this Clippers team is is good. You know, it's it's a cute story. If you put Kawhi yeah. on this team and he actually buys in and plays 75 games, they could be the number two seed in the Western Conference next year. Absolutely. Um, I mean, look, as soon as Durant leaves the Warriors, the West is going to be kind of wide open. And it's something that I, I don't think we have completely wrapped our heads around. But um, the Clippers are going to have as, as good a shot as anybody if they can get Kawhi. And then they're going to have room to get somebody else, too, if they want. Um, so there's no question it's all on the table. For right now, I agree with you that they are kind of uh, the West Coast cute story and good, clean family fun. We've talked about it all year. I do really enjoy that they are not missing a single opportunity 
to dunk on the Lakers <laughs> through these final six weeks, okay? Like after every Zubak game, and then Doc comes out this week and forcefully denies any Lakers rumors. Like, I don't know how real the Lakers rumors ever really were, but for Doc, it was a perfect opportunity to come out and talk about how great the Clippers culture was and make the Lakers look even more desperate and hopeless. And, um, and that's great. I, good for the Clippers because they've done everything right over the past few years. They've been really fun to watch like night in and night out. And this is the type of plan that everyone should be rooting for to work, you know, because like this is a much better version of the process. If you can just put together competitive teams and granted this, is, this option isn't really available to most of the league because most of the league doesn't play in Los Angeles. Um, but if you can put together competitive teams and then recruit stars to come help put you over the top, like that's a win for everybody. And, um, and it's cool to, to watch them put it together and actually make it work a little bit here. That's well said, Andrew. Thanks for letting me plug that. If, if people out there are interested in any way, please go check that feature out. I did spend a, you know, a decent amount about, it. I thought Lawrence Frank was really uh, candid in what he had to say about some of the challenges facing people in that situation, that job. Uh, check it out online. Thanks for letting me plug it, Andrew. We can now get you know get on with your questions. Can I? While we're on the topic of like sentimental favorites, um, I just have one question off the top of my head. I haven't personally thought very hard about it, but like, it is something that has popped up over the past few weeks. Why don't you think more people are seriously considering the Nets as a free agent destination? That's a good question. Um, they were so far off the radar uh, for so long. I think that's part of it. Like they haven't kind of normalized themselves back into the conversation. I think part of the Clippers strategy is like, hey, let's just like be in the mix for these guys. Let's be finalists for guys for a couple of years. And then eventually we're going to get one right. And I think yeah. Brooklyn's like right at the start of this conversation. Uh, I also think it looks like Delo's team, right? So if I'm a free agent, I'm looking at that and saying, well, that's D'Angelo's team. Like he kind of built it up. He's going to carry that thing. If I go there, you know, I don't I don't want any tension. You know, do I want to go play with them? Do I want to go be the man there? Or do I want a kind of a clean slate? But I'd also say yeah. this too, right? Like the big name free agents, whether it's Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, or, uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard. I mean, these guys are all, you know, currently in some of the best winning environments in basketball. And yes, termites, you heard me right. I'm including Toronto with that. Very smart, <laughs> uh, you know, very smart. Is only a controversial take on our podcast. Right. Everyone else. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, underline and highlight, you know, this in your notes, termites, because you're always sending me these angry emails, right? Just, I'm giving you yes. credit here. I'm keeping you in the same conversation. If those guys were to leave for a city or, you know, like a uh, an organization like either the Nets or the Knicks, they're not doing it for basketball reasons, right? They're doing it. Some, right. some other thing is, um, you know, at the top of their list. And it's the same thing that happened with LeBron James. I mean, I was all excited about going to San Antonio, going to Houston. Don't you think he'd be in the playoffs if he had gone to one of those places that I was recommending, you know, going back, what, like a, a year and a half ago? He didn't even really mm -hmm. seem to give them serious looks because he had other designs and, and what he was doing. And uh, I think that those would be some of the doubts, right? Like Brooklyn yeah. hasn't established itself as a super winning culture. It looks like D'Angelo's team, and it doesn't have that old school, traditional, huge platform that the Knicks offer. Yeah, well, and the the brand is maybe ten percent as strong as the Knicks, and it sounds crazy to talk about the Knicks as a strong brand, but like 
for all the jokes people tell, there are like 20 million Knicks fans in America, and there is a real mystique to Madison Square Garden, and I understand why people would look at that platform and say, I want to go play there. Yeah, I can go hey, make that my, my franchise, that's, and it's a win. That's a great point, Andrew, because the jokes people tell about the Knicks are largely told by Knicks fans, right? Like They're the ones who are waiting for their team to finally be good, and they're just self-loathing for the last 20 years. Well, no, but like when Anthony Davis came out and said, you know, that's a great franchise with great history, a lot of people were like, what is he talking about? Is this the same Knicks team? Does he need to get his head checked? And it's like, you know what? Like, let's chill on that a little bit because the Knicks have been one of the more prestigious names in basketball for like 35 or 40 years, regardless of what their record has been. And that does matter to some degree, just the same way the Lakers still matter even though they're a complete shit show. So there's a lot of factors to balance. And as far as the Nets, I'm just surprised that they haven't even gotten a token mention in any of these conversations because you're still talking about New York City and they do seem to have a lot of things figured out on the basketball side and a lot of intriguing young players. Um, but who, who really cares? It's just sort of a passing thought I had. The Nets are going to be fine. I'm curious as to how they work things out with the Dinwiddie, Lavert, D'Angelo, Russell triumvirate. We should talk about D'Angelo in a little bit here, but um, but they're certainly much better off than they were like three years ago. So that's progress. No, there's progress, no question about it. And just one other final Nets note: um, they had about half the team out there for Alan Crabb's, uh, you know, court reveal, like his presentation mm-hmm. of like naming the court about him. So they're in L.A., right? These guys have a lot of things they could be doing. There aren't very many franchises around the league that would be able to get half their players out for a guy who's injured. Um, you know, and basically it was like a two and a half hour ceremony, like front to back once you factor in traffic and all that. For them to all show up, like that, I think it says something about their culture. And look, I've been pretty hard on the Nets the whole way through. Uh, I don't view them as a very serious playoff threat. Uh, I don't think their overall talent level is that high. But Kenny Atkinson and his wife were at that ceremony, and they had a lot of players, a lot of you know fairly big-name players, whether it's Russell, uh, Ed Davis, Dinwiddie, who you mentioned, right down the list. I mean, that, that says something about your team. They're on the right track. Yeah, no question. Should we just transition here to the D'Angelo Russell question we have? Um, I'm at your I... mercy, Andrew. Don't even ask me because it doesn't <laughs> matter what I'm going to say. Just go for it. You know, I rode with 20 minutes of Clippers talk. Let's talk D'Angelo for a second here. Mike says, just when I thought the most iconic moment and fitting bow to wrap this Lakers season up was Mario Hazonia blocking LeBron James, D'Angelo Russell is now in position to officially eliminate the Lakers from playoff contention in a game at Staples Center on Friday. What are your thoughts? And Ben, it's funny because I'm a little conflicted here because um, I don't know if the Lakers deserve to be killed for this. It, it like, it's funny. I, you didn't hear the the latest um, low post, did you? The one he did with Ryan Rosillo. I haven't heard it yet. Okay, so but I will Zach, listen because I respect both those guys as takesmen. Exactly. Um, Zach and Rosillo are two of the best NBA guys we have. And they opened their podcast with like a 10 minute conversation about D'Angelo Russell. And I swear to God, I had the exact same conversation with friend of the podcast, Sam Esfandiari, 
the day before their podcast, and um, we hit a couple different beats that I want to run by you. Number one, I just don't know if the Lakers deserve a ton of blame for the D'Angelo Russell situation. I think like he was pretty immature while he was in L.A., and um, I don't know if his game ever would have hit the point it has this season had he just stayed with the Lakers. I think that on some level, the trade benefited him, and it was like a wake-up call that he needed to sort of turn the corner. What do you think? Well, so first of all, in response to Mike's question about is this going to be the most iconic moment of the season, I'm not sure if you've seen that one shining moment video that Worldwide Wild Wild put out about uh, all the Lakers, you know, just crazy moments like Michael Beasley forgetting his shorts, Rondo punching Chris Paul or whatever else. I mean, it is like a cinematic masterpiece. It's like three minutes long. (laughs) I just like all the low moments of uh, the Lakers season. But I wanted Uh to tell Wob, like, you released this thing too early, man. We still got another month of possible material, and this D'Angelo Russell game is going to be right there at the top of the list. Like, there might have to be a sequel is what I'm saying. I guess so. The thing is, I think people are are just completely checked out on the Lakers. I think the lowest of the low points came a few weeks ago. I don't even necessarily count the Hazonia block because the season was already over. The Suns lost, right? I mean, when you're coming on the playoff activated and then you go out there and LeBron's throwing the ball off the backboard. I mean, I think that was... (laughs) That was right yeah, up there. And now they're like starting Mike Muscala, you know, Mo Wagner has been getting a lot of minutes and it's just like the whole season is over at this point. Oh, it's a great point. And I'm going to watch them on Friday and Sunday. So fantastic. Way to go me. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a great weekend for Ben. <laughs> way to go me. Anyway, back to your thing on uh, Russell. You're preaching to the choir on this. I mean, I was telling you about his immaturity the entire time he was in Los Angeles. It drove me crazy. He was not carrying himself the right way. He was not doing what he needed to be doing and there was people coming out of the woodwork left right and center to tell me those things um yeah it was a lot of red flags you know this was like you know a chinese government building level red flag everywhere (laughs) um now well and that's the thing so here's here's my issue is there a lot of people killing magic and it's like you know what I remember watching those Lakers teams, and I loved D'Angelo Russell. And this is another case where I'm right about the big things. D'Angelo is going to work out and be very solid for the next 10 years. But even during oh. those first couple seasons, as a believer, I couldn't help but notice that like Luke Walton was giving him every possible chance to win him over, and D'Angelo just like couldn't get it and would be relegated to the end of the bench by the end of each of those seasons because he would just like fall out of favor with the team and that's not like the you you can say magic has been short-sighted in 10 different ways over the last two years but like i don't believe that everyone around the lakers missed it with d'angelo russell i think like there was an element of this that he didn't get at that point there's no question about it but let me like put a little finer point on the criticism of magic with regard to d'angelo right so okay. the idea of trading D'Angelo at that time with to get rid of Mozgov's contract because you're coming in, you have to clear things out, you have to try to set the table for LeBron and another star because that's your plan, right? Just because you mm-hmm. miss on the second star doesn't mean that that wasn't a good plan, right? Like it just means you, did, you didn't follow through. So that's one part of it. The other thing though is, especially after kind of digging into the inner workings of this new Clippers front office, like they've got a president, a GM, an assistant GM, a head of scouting, multiple full scouting staffs. They have got 15 medical people who are in charge who've all been brought on since Balmer got there. 
they've got 60 plus people in their basketball operations department, right? When you have that level of uh, depth and, you know, varied experiences and different voices and collaborative efforts, not to mention Doc on top of all of that, you're, yeah. gonna, you're going to get yourself in situations where you're maximizing the value of trades. So when you trade away Tobias Harris, you're not just getting two first round picks. You're also pilfering Landry Shamit, you know, who's going to be a long-term starter for you going forward here, uh, you know, just like underneath well, the table at the end of that deal, right? <laughs> if, so- if Landry Shamit is a long-term starter, I think that the Clippers are in trouble. Landry Shamit is good. I'm, when I watch wait on it. Landry Shamit, just, just wait on it, Andrew. This guy can play. <laughs> no, this guy can really play. I know play. he can play. Uh, my takeaway from his games, though, are like, I'm just kind of... I'm curious about where the NBA is going because as far as his skill set, like it doesn't go very far beyond just being able to shoot and have a quick release. And that might be all it takes to be an above average NBA player going forward. Like shooting is just now so important that guys like Joe Harris and Landry Shamit are like really valuable pieces. Um, and they, I don't think they would have been anywhere near as valuable 10 or 15 years ago. And it's just kind of a strange place to be. Well, welcome to, you know, 2019. I mean, this guy's going to be a quality <laughs> player for a long time. The point was okay. not necessarily let's debate his ceiling. The point was like, you just grabbed one more little asset at the end of those trades because you have mm-hmm. so many people working on these situations and getting into it. Like if, uh, you know, the Lakers front office, if it's magic and Palinka kind of going by their gut and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, do things, you know, it, frankly, sometimes a little bit sloppy, sometimes a little bit sharp elbowed. Sometimes you're trying to bully teams into it. Like, I think that their process behind how they traded um, D'Angelo or these some of these other moves and decisions they made, whether to keep guys or let other guys go, are they keeping positive, friendly relationships with all the relevant agents, uh, like Randall's agent, like those kinds of things yeah. should be second-guessed. And we should be looking and saying, like, hey, do they have the right depth of staff? Like, does Magic uh, empower his staff? Or is he more of a guy who's just saying, look, I know how this works because I've been in the NBA for 40 years and just trying to do it his way? I think those are very fair questions to ask the Lakers front office because their track record here over the last five years has a lot more misses than hits. Yes, uh, I agree 100%. And um, one more point on Shamit. You're talking to the world's biggest Wayne Ellington fan, so I am rooting for Landry Shamit to succeed. I just think it's incredible how narrow some of his skills are and yet how valuable he is. Um, but as far as the Lakers management point, and the, the parallel to the Clippers is a great one because this is sort of what I was talking about a couple weeks ago, the last time we talked about this stupid team, is like, I don't know how much money they really have to invest in the infrastructure of that organization, whether it's the medical staff, whether it's the front office, whether it's the scouting department. Um, and I think, you know, you juxtapose that with Steve Ballmer and his $40 billion pool of revenue that he can sink into every conceivable aspect of the Clippers um, to give them any possible advantage they can find. Like, that does make a difference. And when we're talking about the D'Angelo situation, I think the people, I think like it's easy to, to dunk on them for trading D'Angelo, who is now good. And, and that sort of elides some important context like that was there at the time of the trade. But um, 
if you want to go back to that like month where they traded him, it was a little weird how quickly they zeroed in on Lonzo Ball and how everybody just sort of like took it as a given that he had the kind of superstar potential that you typically want at number two. And um, I think Anthony Davis would probably be on the Lakers if they had taken Jason Tatum in that draft. And so... Yeah, and we there all saw that one decisions. coming months away. Like, you know, like before it even happened, we all knew they were going to take Lonzo, right? Because it's like, yeah. it, to a certain degree, relevance, celebrity, people talking about us matters more to the Lakers than it does to the average team. And to expect them to be able to look away from the biggest story in college basketball that year, largely because of his dad's comments, uh, but he, he was like a consistent headliner to be able to look away from the hometown angle, to be able to resist the, uh, you know, every time Magic's running into people at the the local Gold's gym, you know, hey, have you seen that kid at UCLA? <laughs> he can really pass just like you, Magic. To be able to re- resist all of those kinds of, uh, you know, mental shortcuts um, takes uh, a lot of experience, a lot of like cold and calculation. Some it would of that, have taken Jerry West and right. not Magic Johnson. Or like some and, of that, and, that Sam Presti mentality, right? Of being able to like exactly. detach from everything. And that's not who they are. And that's why they, we knew they were going to take Lonzo. And I also think like your point is, you know, are, are they getting uh, hammered a little bit too much for the D'Angelo trade? Like if Lonzo had been healthy all season long, I think a lot of this noise would be dampened at least somewhat because I don't think he's as bad as his critics say he is. And I think he's mm-hmm. he's played some really important uh, moments for them. Now, is he going to be an all-star like face of the franchise, which is your point? Is he going to be a Jason Tatum? You know, probably not. Uh, and that yeah. and that's a different conversation. But that's saying, OK, like let's let's argue about whether he should have gone two or he should have gone six or whatever. That's not what the conversation is right now that's happening across the NBA, which is the Lakers are absolute morons. They've screwed up every decision from the last 10 years and they deserve what they get. <laughs> you know what I mean? And well, and they've probably forfeited the benefit of the doubt, which is fine. I'm not here to defend the Lakers. It's just one of those things where I've, I've found myself side-eyeing various segments around the media being like, how could the Lakers have given up on D'Angelo Russell? And it's like, I don't know. I was there. It was not like that controversial a decision at the time. Um, and the Lonzo thing is interesting too, because that's one where I think a lot of the media overcorrected and didn't want to fall into this like hot take trap where Lonzo was treated as the basketball Tebow and people were picking apart his game. When I think there were actually a lot of legitimate questions to ask. And so by the time the draft arrived, people were kind of tired of nitpicking Lonzo and were like, yeah, maybe he is the number two player in the draft. When um, <laughs> that's where you need like a strong, smart, forward thinking GM to be able to kind of see past all that BS and say, wait a second, this guy can't shoot and isn't very fast, can't finish at the rim. Like, I'm not sure if I see a superstar here, but it just. That wasn't magic, so... Right, and like, don't um, you think even if they had had the number one pick that year, don't you think they still would have taken Lonzo? I do. And like, do you think I don't know. They... Apparently, they really did like Fultz. <laughs> well, okay, but... Uh, <laughs> what I'm we'll saying never is... know what happened with Fultz. Well, that's another I example still... of like smart management, right? Like Danny Ainge has the, the guts to trade exactly. out of that number one spot to get down to number three, knowing, you know, having a good read on what he thinks the Lakers are going to do, having an understanding of what he thinks, you know, Philly is going to do with that number one pick and being able yep. to cash that extra draft asset and get the guy he wants. Right. Like that's a thorough, uh, you know, strong decision by, uh, you know, uh, a well-functioning, 
well-oiled machine that's been working together for a long time with lots of different uh, voices and intelligent people in that room, right? With the mm-hmm. Lakers, it was going to be a lot. I mean, they can say what they want. Don't you think they're going to take Alonzo at number one no matter what? Like, don't you think as soon as they saw the hype and the, the local interest there, that was their guy? I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go that far, uh, but the juxtaposition with Ainge is a, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about and what the Lakers have lacked. Um, I do want to ask you, the other half of the Russell conversation that I had with Sam and similar to what Russillo and Zach were talking about earlier in the week, it's like, even now, as well as he's playing and as much as I personally love watching his game, there are a lot of like pull-up contested 17-footers that feel like they're bad shots. And I don't know... I don't know how good he's actually going to be. Like, he's clearly going to be a top 10 point guard for the next several years. But um, I don't know if I see, like, a, a full-blown superstar. So where are you on Russell and, like, how far this can actually go? I mean, he's been better more quickly than I expected, certainly when they made the trade or when I was suffering through his games here in L.A., I'm just not mm-hmm. the world's biggest fan. He's not really my style of player. Uh, I don't think he's the most natural <laughs> distributor. I don't think he's a very high-impact uh, defensive player. I don't think he really cares that much. Um, yeah. I think I worry that so much of his value comes when he's running hot or cold with the three-pointer. And you know he's just been in a real groove here the last few months. I wonder how long is that going to continue? Like, where does he really fall on the the spectrum of quality shooters, but you love his confidence. You love that he wants the ball late in games. I wish he got to the free throw line more often, obviously. I mean, I think, yeah, I think he's fine. Uh, but you know, if like, I just, I'm not going <laughs> to well, go much farther. Let me tell than you that. why I love it. What I loved about him initially going back to Ohio state is that he just has an awesome feel for the game. And, um, he has, I've talked about this on the podcast a number of times where like, there's an intangible quality that great guards have, just a, a feel for how to create space and kind of slither through a defense and get to wherever they want. And D'Angelo has had that since he was a freshman at Ohio well, State. I would I would twist that, though, because I, that's what I saw on the college tape, too. But he did not really show that feel very often in L.A. And so it wasn't just a maturity problem for me. It was like a decision making. And like, is this guy really capable of running a team? Well, like, those questions really cropped up for me. And it could have been the personnel around him. It could have been just the game finally has slowed, uh, slowed down for him here the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. He's got his confidence. He's got his legs back. But there was long stretches where I was just like, what is this guy doing with the basketball? Like, what is I, what, what is his idea here? Like, where is he going and uh, how it is this tough. going to function, you know? You know what? The parallel for me would be when Johnny Manziel went to the Browns and it was like, whoa, this guy is really pretty small. And he looked like he was 5'10 out there. I guess he probably is literally 5'10. Um, but that that's how it felt watching D'Angelo Russell thrown in as a rookie and it wasn't that he was small but he just looked even slower than I expected he was never the most explosive guy in the world but like as a rookie I really wasn't sure if he was going to be quick enough to get to his spots and find that comfort zone but that has sort of leveled off over the past few years and even to some degree he had moments in LA where it was like okay this can probably work um 
But yeah, but he also had moments that, where he was getting benched by Luke Walton because he couldn't well, he, he couldn't that, run the offense and like he didn't know how to use issue. any of his teammates or anything else. You know, that was the issue. Is like I I was convinced that it could work, and then I was like, wait a second, does does every teammate just hate this dude? Like I don't know why Luke Walton seems to hate him, but but something is not right. Um, and that seems to have worked out also in Brooklyn, and he is playing with more confidence than ever. Well, I think the, his biggest, the biggest improvement key, though I think his biggest improvement is the is the videography restraint you know I think that was a real big issue in LA too <laughs> and he's he's shown a much lighter touch when it comes to hitting record on his teammates embarrassing conversations you know what I have to give you credit after that first of all I was right about D'Angelo Russell being good yeah. but no, you were right you ran after away from the, that you you ran away from Russell for so long now you're running back I, to pack know, yourself yeah. on the back it's a little embarrassing but I'll give it to you <laughs> <laughs> uh bullshit you're not gonna take this from me d'angelo is great he's been vindicated this year um but the the one thing that you do deserve credit for is after the nick young like secret video fiasco you came on this podcast we had been podcasting for maybe three or four months at that point and said maybe it was longer than that but you said this is not going to be forgiven anytime soon. The Lakers need to trade him, and he. This is going to stick with him around the league for the rest of his career. And you were so mad and- about that. You were. You were just like, no, no. There's no way. I was aghast. I can't believe a that you said it, and b that you were kind of right because it's still. I don't know. I still think people look at him funny, and in conversations I had in the months afterward, like. People really did take that as a serious, serious breach of trust. He broke up their relationship. Of course, that's going to stick to him. Like they're like, isn't Nick and uh, Iggy, whatever her name is, they've been done, right? Yeah. So no, there you go. That deserves to stick. <laughs> Until they're back together and happily married, that deserves to stick. Well, um, I guess to tie this off, I was right about D'Angelo Russell. I'm not sure how right I was, and I, I know he's good, but I can't decide whether he'll actually be great. And um, and I think it's kind of fun that nobody really knows, like because he's just a great shot maker right now. And well, I'll what tell you I this. love most about him, he doesn't. So here's the thing: he would be undeniably like on a superstar track if he got to the line as much as Harden. But what I love about him as a purely as a fan is that he doesn't do that and instead gets all his points in with like low percentage mid-range shots that somehow go in. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Sounds great. Um, <laughs> it's like my platonic ideal of a point guard is D'Angelo Russell. Yeah. Well, maybe you can come save the Wizards and get you guys to 38 wins. Um, I was going to say the Harden stuff. It's so disrespectful to Harden to have D'Angelo Russell compared to him. I feel bad every time that happens. And if we're looking at like well, the, the quote-unquote next Harden, who's actually going to have a chance to be a superstar, I'll take Luka over D'Lo 10 times out of 10. That's crazy. Um, Luka does get to the line more, so sure. But like, first of all, have you seen Luka's shooting numbers? This is another thing that I'm going to be right about, but we don't have to get into it you know too what, deep right now. Do you know what D'Angelo's shooting numbers were when he was Luca's age? <laughs> not um, good. A lot worse than Luca's. Not great. But Luca, the whole deal with him is that he is already closer to his ceiling than anyone realizes. Um, Luca might but, be better than D'Angelo right now, and he's definitely going to be better than D'Angelo three years from now, and he's going to be much closer 
to Harden than D'Angelo ever will be? Um, no, that's complete bullshit. Um, I think Harden is like in a class of his own. Neither one of those guys are going to be close to him. I do think stylistically, the comparisons to Harden, uh, the comparisons between D'Angelo Russell and James Harden have some merit. Um, and where they diverge is with the efficiency at the rim because it's not just getting a line like D'Angelo Russell doesn't really finish at the rim nearly as well as Harden does. And that's one of the reasons he settles for all those floaters that again, have been going in. Um, but um, I'm going to be right about Luca. I was right about Ben Simmons. I'm right about D'Angelo Russell. I don't know when you're going to just kind of wake up and uh, get on my page here. So you're saying Ingram is better than Simmons. That was your original argument. I mean, come on, that's crazy. <sighs> Ingram had some moments down the stretch. I'm not ready to concede that entirely. And you're um, gonna you're gonna vote for Luca for rookie of the year too, right? You were the one who was talking like <laughs> Simmons was like a surefire Hall of Famer. It's still coming. Just wait on it. Wait year. on it. It's coming. And future Hall of Famer Luka Doncic, as far as you're concerned as well. I'm all I'm trying to do is add a little bit of perspective here. You know. Yeah. Your your perspective is uh, you really like Russell. You're praying that he's going to be good, but you still can't commit to him actually being good because you're worried about your victory lap coming back to bite you. We see no, your perspective. Because I'm an adult. Because I'm not going to sit here and lie to people. Okay. <laughs> I personally enjoy watching him play i do still have some questions um let's move on though to another question here what should we talk oh you know what we need to talk about sixers celtics elliot asks how can joel mb deserve recognition as potentially the best player in the game if he isn't good if he isn't as good as anthony davis um, and he's referring Uh-oh. to something we said like four months ago. Wait, wait, wait. I said we he said, wasn't as good as Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> you said. And here we go again. If you're going to spend 15 minutes trying to tell us how you're right about everything, this is good. You know, maybe you should no. admit that you were wrong on this one. I was wrong. I was wrong. And um, I think, you know, and beat down the stretch has really opened my eyes. And I, he's better than I realized both offensively and defensively. And um, and I think when you're talking about, like, is he the quote-unquote best player in the game, durability becomes an issue and how effective he's going to be at the highest levels of the sport becomes an issue. And so I, I don't really want to, like, get into an argument about whether he's number one in the league. But um, he's but not. I, do and think I, he, I don't think he's in that conversation either. But he's close. He's going to be higher on like next year's top 100s from everybody than he was this past year. He's definitely raised his game like a a whole tier. You know what I mean? Yes. And I think that it like when we're talking about all NBA, a lot of people are just going to slot him in as the center, which obviously makes a lot of sense. But even if there were no positions and you had to pick the five best players in the league this season, I think Embiid is like a unanimous selection for that first team. And, uh, and it's because of how dominant he is defensively in addition to offense. Like, I don't think there's a better two-way player in the game. And, 
you, you look at guys like Gobert. Wait, did Giannis fall at, off the planet, or what, we're not going to give Giannis two-way credit? Okay, Giannis, Giannis is in the mix as well. My point would be that Embiid is right there with Giannis, and uh, the best version of Embiid's game is as good as the best version of Giannis's game. Yeah, I shouldn't and have undercut your point. Look, he's a better two-way player than Kawhi Leonard, who was like the face of the two-way player for years, and he's a better two-way player, I think, uh, then Paul George as well, who was sort of getting that label for a lot of this season. Yeah, well, and Paul George, like Paul George and Rudy Gobert, get a lot of credit for their defense in part because their offense isn't as good as people would want. Like Paul George is obviously a great offensive player, but he's not Kevin Durant. So people harp on how great he is defensively to talk about why he's an elite player, and that's fine. Rudy Gobert, sort of the same conversation. He's decent on offense, but his defense is what makes him special. And and Bede's impact defensively is is more impressive than either one of those guys. And um, watching him against the Celtics, I was just kind of stunned at how dominant this guy can be. And uh, and that's why like you look at the way the 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 Sixers have struggled against Boston over the past couple years. And the path for them to kind of solve that problem is going to be Embiid just turning into a monster and taking over those games. And uh, he did it on Wednesday night. I think the Celtics still probably come out of that game feeling really good. Kyrie in particular was getting like almost whatever he wanted in the half court. Um, Even in the second half, they just, the shots weren't falling, but, uh, but, it was a really impressive win for the Sixers, and I think yeah. Embiid is in that elite tier. Well, I'll tell you this. If I was Brett Brown, my entire coaching strategy would be to like, you know, transcribe our podcast when we gush about Giannis, to clip out every single article about how Giannis is taking the throne in the Eastern Conference from LeBron James and just mm-hmm. force feed it to Joel Embiid and be like, big man, they're forgetting about you. They're not giving <laughs> you the credit that you Thank deserve. Thank you. That's, That's how- exactly what I'm trying to say is that the the door is open for him to go take it. Right now the throne is is vacant and the playoffs are an opportunity for Kawhi, for Embiid, for Giannis, for Durant. A number of guys can go stake their claim as the best player in the league and um, Embiid has a case and he's not talked about in those terms often enough. Well done. But I that could be an us problem, Andrew. We get into our own little... I mean, don't, don't you think people give Embiid a lot of credit generally? I mean, I think... I agree with you. We have been sliding him all season long for how well he's played in terms of the amount of attention that we give him, like episode to episode. But yeah. don't you think he maybe has raised himself into that conversation? Like you're saying, like he's basically going to be a no-brainer first-team All-NBA pick. That's, that's not nothing. That's a level of yeah. respect that he did not have last year. I think so. I just want to make sure that he makes first team all NBA, not as like the token center, the like rich man's DeAndre Jordan, but as a like, all right, this is clearly one of the five best dudes in the league. And to answer Elliot's question, like how does he deserve recognition as potentially better than Anthony Davis? The truth is that there's a group of about eight guys who are in that first tier. I still put Anthony Davis in there. But the differences between them are incredibly slim right now because there's just a lot of guys who are very close to dead even in terms of where they rank. And like you, you do this shit every year. I'm sure you feel the same way because they, like I don't know how you choose between 
Harden and Steph right now or Harden and and KD like it, there's just everybody there's this glut of incredible MVP caliber candidates at the top of the league there's no doubt there's been a lot of transition you know going up going down risers fallers there's going to be you know a lot of attention during the postseason like you just mentioned in terms of that being kind of a sorting process to really see how these guys stack up but, you know, one good way to do it is to just take attendance, like who shows up, you know, and I think that Embiid <laughs> yes. moving past Davis has a lot to say about how Embiid's improved, but it also has a lot to say about how Anthony Davis has conducted himself. Right. Um, there's no question about that. And I, and I look forward to Anthony Davis rejoining the NBA. Hey, can I uh, shift gears here with some breaking news for you? Oh, hit me. I want to hear your live reaction to this news. Ja Morant, you know, the number one ranked point guard, uh, you know, on most draft boards, just had a triple-double leading Murray State in a 19-point victory over Marquette (sighs) in the first round. Big-time triple-double, Andrew. What do you think? I mean, are are we looking at a future Bull, a future Nick? What is this? Well, first of all, I really enjoyed the 10 minutes I got to watch of Ja Morant and Marcus Howard in the first half of Marquette Murray State. And I have to be honest with you, I was not really looking forward to coming on and recording this podcast. What a jerk. pouring rain in D.C. (laughs) And I was just feeling very cozy, watching hoops. And I was was in my, like, comfort zone, my happy place. And then... and you can vouch. Like I, I called you and was like, "Look, can we can we push this back thirty minutes?" Because I wanted to see some of the Ja Morant game. Um, so yeah, I'm a little pissed off. That's my live reaction. Is I wish I could have seen that triple double, but I I'm happy that he advanced because I'll get to see another game from him. That did not play out like I thought it did. <laughs> I thought it was going to. Uh, he had a huge double pump dunk right on somebody. He had some incredible assists. Oh re- my Andrew, god! I love this kid, man. I think this kid could be really good. Yeah, I think he is going to be um, a nice consolation prize to whoever loses the Zion sweepstakes because John Morant, like, I'm not totally sold on his ceiling as like a as a superstar. I don't really know. I need to watch more of his games, but he is going to be really really fun to root for, and um, I think anybody who who gets the number two pick is going to be pretty fired up. But here's what I'm thinking, Andrew, we've been talking humanity and all this stuff on today's podcast. I want to do a little community service. What do you think for all the blog boys out there? Here's a, here's a free from me to you column headline. It's not a one player draft. Okay. It's a two player draft. John Moran, put him in there. Go ahead, write that column. That will get you some clicks guys. I'm handing it off to you for all the blog boys listening. Okay. Uh, Well, let's talk a little bit more draft. Okay. Uh, Ahima says, at this time last year, R.J. Barrett was the unanimous number one high school recruit and was projected to go first in the NBA draft. So what changed in the span of a year? Did Zion just get drastically better, or did scouts get it wrong with R.J. Barrett? How much stock should we put into the ranking of high school players? Um, do you have any thoughts off the top of your head there, Ben? I, yeah, I do. I mean, first of all, Zion definitely got better. He consolidated things. He opened a lot of eyes. He proved, you've mentioned this before, like, oh, maybe he can only do this against South Carolina high school kids. Well, that whole thought process of like the quality of competition not being up to snuff went out the mm-hmm. window very, very early. Um, but I also think like, look, number one high school player, like they're still early enough in their development where that does not necessarily mean you're going to be number one forever. Like I'm old enough to remember when Avery Bradley was number one 
in some people's eyes. Wow, was he really? Over John Wall, right? And so like, you know, like things can change and and uh, this is still a very fluid time. But my favorite yeah. thing about RJ Barrett is like I think a lot of people have made the point that Zion is not really a Duke player because he's so lovable that it kind of like sucks you into the Duke vortex, even if you've been like a lifelong Duke hater. I think that's basically true. Maybe not for everybody, but generally speaking, Zion like transcends like the Duke mentality. But to yeah, me, RJ pretty upsetting, honestly, but. right? I, I know you've been very conflicted. I saw you and Cameron, like you were ready to like paint your face. It was get real awkward <laughs> after a lifetime of, of uh, North Carolina. Love. You know, what's actually like truly fucked up is that I am more excited to have Zion in DC than I would have been to have Carolina in DC. And I feel like deeply guilty about that, but that's wow. just where I am. Wow. It's terrible. Uh, so my point on RJ was though is he falls <laughs> he falls right into this category of the Duke guys where uh, it's sort of like Jaleel Okafor or Jabari Parker where like it's so much fun to nitpick them that like if you are sort of like just an anti-Duke person in general he's just right in your wheelhouse like who cares if he scores 30 if it's not efficient and his true shooting percentage sucks let's rip this guy to shreds he's gonna be a bust <laughs> he's just gonna be another one of these Duke guys who can't do it right and uh-huh um, it's not like he's fallen off the map. I think the premise of the question was like a little bit off. Like this guy's to me, he's still going to be a top five pick. Um, you know, he's from the basketball family, this lineage of Canadian uh, prospects that have been coming along, uh, you know, in recent years, he's got some real skills to him, but he's not a, uh, you know, a full, uh, you know, all around a plus plus plus, uh, prospect like a Zion is. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to suffer by comparison. Um, but I think the, yeah. the best part about RJ is getting to, you know, watching Duke and getting to pick him apart while you're gushing over Zion. <laughs> it's a great point because RJ, I mean, he's had like personal coaches for the last five or six years. He's very, very Duke, whereas Zion kind of feels like this organic sensation that has taken on a life of its own. Um, but the RJ thing, I think if you had seen more of his season this year, you would be lower on RJ Barrett than you are. Um, Because I've watched a number of his games and uh, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something, but I am just out on this. Okay. So what I, but quantify that. So he's not a top five prospect. No, I think he is a top five prospect, but I think the answer to Ahima's question is number one, this is a bad draft. And I think you said it was a two-player draft. To me, all due respect to Ja Morant, it's like a a one-and-a-half-player draft. (laughs) Um, And I think that the RJ thing, somebody's going to take him, somebody's going to talk themselves into him, in large part because there aren't many alternatives. Um, And the, the real point of this question, though, I think the NBA still does put a little bit too much stock into the ranking of high school players because, like, I was watching R.J. Barrett in the preseason talking to a couple scouts and being like, I don't really see it. And they're talking to me about stuff he did in Egypt with the Canadian national team at the World Junior Championships. And I'm like, like, you can go back – Every class has a guy who's just developed a little bit earlier than everybody else and can kind of do whatever he wants at 18 years old. But the best players at 18 years old, like like we say a lot, um, and it's dorky to repeat this repeatedly on a podcast, but um, this stuff isn't linear. 
And like the best player at 18 isn't necessarily going to be the best player when everybody's 25. And um, like Josh Jackson was a similar story who he was incredible at the high school level and even in college in Kansas. Um, but I think that's, that's kind of the archetype that I see with RJ Barrett. And um, hopefully I'm wrong because he does, he will look better in NBA spacing than he has looked at Duke. There's a lot of times when he'll like crash into three guys and in the NBA, there will be more space to operate. But um, I'm a little lower on him, and I, I feel guilty about it, but it is what it is. I mean, I didn't feel like I was hyping him up that much. I compared him to Julio Okafor and uh, Jabari Parker, <laughs> like two guys you know I've been out on forever. Um, and that's not like positional comps. That's just sort of like, you know, you've got the strengths, but you've also got some real clear weaknesses. And when you're watching these guys have success at the college level, um, it's just as easy to talk yourself into what they can't do than to yeah. what they what they are doing. I guess that was my point with those comparisons. Um, when when I look at him, I mean, you mentioned okay, the the NBA guys are kind of predisposed to favor number one picks, or they're predisposed to look at a player like him and say, hey, yeah, this guy really could work. I mean, when he's rolling, he makes it look really easy. Uh, you know, he's got this smooth affect to his game. He's got some ball handling ability. He can create a shot. He's got the prototypical size. So like there are things that have fooled, you know, professional talent evaluators before in all sorts of different players. And he possesses a lot of those same skills. And I think, you know, to me, what I'm looking for from the tournament from him is just to like emerge as like a complete dog, you know, just like go out there and just play like crazy, like, you know, lift your effort level and your intensity level up to like, 0.75 Zion right because Zion's going to be on his own level but like every single game go out there and play like that and if he doesn't I think he's going to get crucified I think if Duke gets upset I think he's going to probably wind up being the fall guy I feel bad for him because he's a young kid but I think that's sort of the facts of life here and I feel bad too I hate talking about any 19 year old this way but I mean it is like a big NBA story um but you're right I, I we should be well I'm not going to be rooting for RJ Barrett I'm not going to sit here and lie on the podcast but yeah, but you're um, going to be rooting against him not being piled on if he if he no shows a game and everybody yes. blames him for like ruining Zion's whole life right exactly um but speaking of Zion we could talk for five minutes uh Joshua says okay so the USS Zion just went off for, for 13 of 13 shooting and looked generally outstanding in his return from the explosion of his sneaker and that was of course against Syracuse in the ACC tournament he went on to beat North Carolina how crazy how- is it no listen listen he goes 13 for 13 against Syracuse he goes 31 and 11 against Carolina he plays all 40 minutes to beat Florida State in the ACC title game and we were the two guys who flew across the country to watch his shoe blow up. I mean, come on. <laughs> Dude, he was 26 of 32 across his first two games back. And so just for to, to finish the question, Joshua says, I get that he's so much fun to watch in college. He will be average at, the, at best in the NBA. Am I missing something? Why do we keep hyping players that can't shoot? Um that's we can get to that in a second i can't believe how good zion is in college specifically i just love watching him dominate these games he makes it look so easy and even beyond the dunks his touch around the rim and some of the baby hooks and like the layups like 
He's just so awesome in the paint. I could watch that shit all day long. So that's my Zion in college take. What do you have? I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable to say like his standard should be, can he repeat what Anthony Davis did, which was national player of the year as a freshman tournament, Mm -hmm. most outstanding player and then title, right? Like, don't you think that should be sort of the standard for him in terms of like one and done number one pick type guys? Like, I think that's like a very fair standard based on his track record. And look, this question, you know, saying that Zion's going to be average at best in the NBA, you know, that really, you know, befuddled me. That's a take. Yeah. No, if anything, that's trolling. Okay. So I'm going to read you a couple of guys, just names of players that have between a 14.7 PER and a 15.3 PR. So they're like right there around average for this season. Okay. Are you ready for this? Okay. Aaron Gordon, Kelly Olynyk, Kelly Oubre, TJ Leaf, Derek White, Gordon Hayward, <laughs> Malik Beasley. Listen, okay. Derek White and Malik Beasley have had solid little seasons here. So don't besmirch their names. I'm not. I'm just saying Zion's going to be better than them. That's it. That's my <laughs> only point. That's the only reason why I read those names. It's very fair. Um, Yeah, no, here's the thing with Zion. I do think that there is room for more skepticism on his NBA future than has been collectively acknowledged in the media so far. Um, I think he is so much fun to watch in college and so impossible to root against that we're falling into this trap where everyone is just kind of feels obligated to talk about him as if he is the next LeBron. And um, I don't know if I can totally get there because like, you watch him, if you've watched him enough this year, doesn't it look like he carries that weight a little strange? Like, doesn't that concern you at all? I mean, does he flap a little bit in the wind when he's jumping 12 feet in the air? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's amazing, Andrew. Just chill with the body uh, shaming. I don't know what your deal is. I don't, there's what are you gonna no compa- body shaming. <laughs> I mean, you call Just... Luca a 7-Eleven employee. Next thing you know, you're probably going to call... Uh, Zion like a Costco stocker or something like this. I mean, no, on, dude, just... he just he he looks like a refrigerator sometimes, and I'm like, I don't know. I worry about your knees. Like the human body isn't designed to weigh 300 pounds and then also jump 45 inches in the air for 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I, I, I want a refrigerator like that. Like if you can find me <laughs> a, a Kenmore that can dunk from the free throw line, I'm in. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess my only message right now is to appreciate exactly how unstoppable he is in college, because I do think that like, there's nothing that's going to be more like I wrote something quick uh, on Sports Illustrated this week. He reminds me of watching Leonard Fournette at LSU. Or like if you've ever seen old highlights of Herschel Walker at Georgia or Bo Jackson at Auburn, like, that's Zion in college, and um, all of those guys have gone on to, to have great NFL careers, but it was never as much fun as it was watching them in college. Same with, like, Michael Vick at Virginia Tech, and uh, that's what it's like to watch Zion against all these kind of helpless 19- and 20-year-olds. It's just the best. Um, I, I think so- that point is very well taken, but I'm I'm not as worried about that because the NBA has legislated defense out of the game, you know? So <laughs> that's like, a great point. Like that and like if we were looking at the NBA 10 years ago, right? And everybody's trying to still play the slowdown style or like there's a real shift in or like a a clash in styles, 
then I would be yeah. more nervous about it. But I just see the NBA, it's like turned into this carnival. Everybody's getting points. Everybody's getting buckets. Guys who you know, I, I safely wrote off two years ago have been able to resurface as 20 points per game scores, and we have to spend 20 minutes talking about them like D'Angelo Russell. Um, I think <laughs> Zion's going to be creating problems for people when they can't touch him uh, when he's driving to the basket. I think there's going to be some issues there. To that point, we got a question earlier in the week or maybe last week uh, that we didn't get to, but it was about like what players from the 90s would look great in today's game. And um, you can really go down a long list of guys, whether it's like Kevin Johnson, like Shaq in today's game would be even more dominant than he was 25 years ago. And really like... Stockton. Yeah, everybody knows. <laughs> I'm, I'm just getting him in there, but he really would but too. But like, who knows? Like, we talk about Landry Shamit. Like, what would Jeff Hornacek have done in today's game? Like, it's kind of ridiculous. This pace and space era just features the best of everyone. That's ultimately what that thought exercise, uh, what I took away from it, is that you can plug in almost anyone throughout history and they would look better in today's game. And, um, that will certainly be true of Zion. And the only other thing I wanted to mention on Zion is that like, when we talk about why he's so impressive, I do think, for me, the thing that has sold me is just watching how much better he's gotten since he's been famous over the last two or three years. His game has, like, his handle is ten times what it was uh, when he was halfway through high school his passing is great. He's his body has has been like toned over the last couple years. It sounds kind of weird to talk about that, but like he's just like in great shape. Um, and uh, and I think like all those intangibles are why he's kind of like a can't miss number one guy, regardless of whether he could shoot. I think his he does so many other things well that he's going to be fine regardless. That's really really well said, Andrew. Do you know what else has aged well over the years? Um, is it the lantern? It's the lantern segment, Andrew. <laughs> Three if by Graham brought to you by LinkedIn, even if they don't know it. Um, okay, as, fine. for people who haven't really listened the last couple of weeks, the lantern is when I put up a prompt on Instagram, all the, the open floor globe members reply to the prompt with their best, most heartwarming, most thought provoking stories. And, uh, you know, we just have a little discussion about them. Now, Andrew, remember, you're doc- Dr. Sharp in this situation. And this week's prompt was uh, about Doc Rivers. And, you know, he took a small step back, you know, losing that president's title uh, title to g- take a major step forward uh, by, you know, being happier and, and being able to get a new contract with the Clippers and everything else. So I asked the Open Floor Globe members, tell me a situation in your life where you've taken a, st- a small step back for a big step forward. And we got a lot of great uh, replies the first of mm-hmm. all, real quick, as a uh, honorable mention, this was from Warehouse 3. It wasn't an example, but he said, look, here's a great saying that I'm offering up to the master of axioms. And I guess that's me. He says, sometimes the last thing you want is the first thing you need. That made me think for like two hours yesterday. I'm not even exaggerating. So just, you know, just <laughs> that's mental food for thought. Okay, Andrew. But here's yeah, the, here's the master the f- of axioms. There we go. <laughs> um, Andrew. Literally. Here- do not encourage Ben. Emailers, Instagram messengers, like, please don't encourage him. Um, can I just tell you one thought I had at the top here? Absolutely. 
like how many responses did you get referring to relationships? Because I feel like this one is kind of like ready made. Like I, a girl broke up with me and it was awful, but in the end they were like, looking back, that relationship was horrible. I'm in a much better place now. Cause that was my first thought. Well, see, Andrew, I see what you're trying to do. You're, you're thinking I'm going to have three of those and now I have to rush through them and then we're just going to be done. And, <laughs> and you're trying to shortcut the whole situation. I got a lot of those, Andrew, I'm not going to lie, including a great story from AJ Paymaster about proposing to his wife uh, after they both lost their jobs in the recession and they went to Paris and it was a beautiful, beautiful story. But I've got that a nice great. Okay. I've got a nice mix of stories here for you, okay? I've got the top three, as always, because it's three of by Graham. Now, Andrew, here's, here's number one. It's from Matt. And what I want you to do is try to put yourself in these people's positions and tell me what you would have done after the step back. So you're either going to co-sign what they did or you're going to present an alternate reality for us, okay? He okay. writes, I had a problematic right ring finger for almost two years. It was just causing him pain. In December last year, I had a surgeon remove my finger. And since then, I've been pain-free and my life has been so much better Every time someone notices it, I have to calm them down and remind them that it was a good decision and I'm much happier not having the finger anymore. I do drop a lot of things because I basically have a hole in my hand and it's put an end to any possibility of me being a hand model. Nevertheless, I'm so glad I had the finger removed. And I actually sent him a story that was on Yahoo last week about Davis Bertans the Spurs shooter who I think he lost a part of his ring finger in a childhood accident. So we were able to bond over that story too, Andrew. Wow. But what do you think if you were in a situation where one of your 10 fingers was causing you problems, would you have the guts to go to a surgeon and say, cut this thing off? I need to get rid of this thing. What do you think? <laughs> well, first of all, it's Davis Berton, so put some respect on Berton's right, name. <laughs> my bad. I'm trying to read these things as I go. I, I'm learning that hosting is a lot more difficult than it looks when you do it. There you go. There you go. Now you know how I feel. Um, so I think obviously it depends on how bad the pain is. Can I tell you a story from my own life? Absolutely, especially if it involves appendages going off. It, okay, so earlier this week, actually, I was oh rushing out of the house to make it to an appointment uh, I was behind schedule, and I was rushing to the car, slammed the door, and slammed my house door on my hand, ah. and thought for sure, this is why the lantern is a horrible segment so we're talking about. <laughs> it's, it's the appendages. best. Um, I was positive that I had broken my finger. My finger was throbbing for like the following 36 hours. I don't think it was broken. I don't know. Um, but it was awful. And if that pain had persisted for another, let's say three or four weeks and there was no solution, like maybe I would cut the finger off. I don't know. I, I'm sure I would be happier than just living the rest of my life with a throbbing problematic appendage. I think you're right on the money. I got to give full credit to Matt. When I started reading his story, I was like, oh my God, this is such a you know, such a drastic decision. Like there's no going back, but I think you've hit the nail on the head. He made the right I mean, call. You would have <laughs> yeah. made the right call. I mean, it's a big time, big time decision for him. And I just wish him the best. And first of all, though, like there's no way I can sit here and be like, no, you know what, Matt, I heard your story. 
I don't you're care boxed how you into feel a corner. Now. <laughs> yeah, like you really, you probably missed that finger more than you even realize. I feel bad for you from afar, but so no, I'm not saying Look, that. Shout out to Matt. Matt. Bottom line, I am being sincere. There's no generic praise here. Okay, this is the real deal. <laughs> uh, I thank you very much for sharing that story. This one, number two, is from Mindless Wanderer Andrew, and he writes: uh, Six months ago, I left my job. In hindsight, it wasn't really a setback, but you know how that goes. I bought uh-huh. a one-way ticket to Colombia, and I taught myself Spanish, or at least enough to get by. Then I bought a van in Chile, and I've been living by the Gulliver Outdoor Principles for the last three months as I have made my way down to Patagonia all the way to the end of the world in Ushua, and presumably that's down by Antarctica. Okay. Thanks for the awesome pod along the way. It's made for some great listening on the long roads down here. And he goes, P.S. I wrote my bachelor thesis in econometrics using 15 years of MBA data to prove business theory. But that's another story. I'm not sure how high up that would put me on the MBA nerd rankings, but probably pretty high. So, Andrew, first of all, I included this story because it's amazing to realize that we could almost be an anarchist. Like our voices are traveling all the way. <laughs> That's pretty wild. But second of all, I'm curious because you've always asked me, oh, yeah, I think you know, you've always you know, slandered me by saying you're just going to fall off the globe sometime. You know, one of these days I'm just going to disappear into the wilderness yeah. and, and uh, just go live my my existence. Could you ever do this? Like, have you ever thought about just checking out on the world and, and going for a long road trip? You're not a huge road trip guy, I don't think. What would you do if you were in mindless wanderer situation? Or is this just too radical for your your brain to process? Um, it's one of those things that I always admire in other people. It's like good for you, but not for me. I don't think I would ever want to make one of those trips to the end of the world. What's your holdup? Um, I really love cities. I love the energy of cities. I love people and I like kind of being able to go out and, and, you know, see people from all different backgrounds. The wilderness is like, cool for about four hours and then i'm like all right let's, <laughs> let's get back to the real world and so i would like you know what i fantasize about is like a world without technology i'd like to kind of like throw my computer in the river throw my phone in the river but um all things being equal i would prefer to live in an urban area for the rest of my life i hear you and look i'll just be honest like he, this guy was mindless wanderer was sending me some pictures from peru that had me thinking about one-way plane tickets i'm not even kidding like he went to some <laughs> incredible places like i would be spending more than four hours some of these destinations that he went andrew our third and final lantern uh submission is from our old friend senator batman and you know senator batman as having one of the greatest names of any open floor listener and he used to send in emails all the time especially when we were first going on I don't know about you, but I didn't actually know very much about Senator Batman. So this story was incredible. He writes, the setback for me was the 2016 presidential election result. While this might seem to stretch the personal aspect of it a little bit, uh, my girlfriend and the time were extremely active volunteers in the run up to the election. And we did everything we could um, to prevent you know, Trump from winning. Then he writes, okay. but here's the happy result. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, proposed to me. I've included a link to a BBC America interview that we did together after it went viral, and a friend of a friend who works there reached out to me. 
He says, it was a crazy time on so many levels. She's the best. The follow-up here is that we're happily married as of last April. And as far as the election goes, we're all looking forward to the Mueller report and 2020. So look at that, Andrew. Look at that. And let me ask you, can you put yourself into uh, his position? I'm imagining you proposed to Alice, right? Um, I did. What had happened if it had gone the other way around? In other words, she had re responded to some, you know, tragedy in your work life by asking you to marry her. How would you have handled it? Um, I would have been cool with it. That would have been great. So wait, can I just hammer in on some details here? <laughs> of um, course. Did she propose on election night? I think it was in the immediate aftermath of the election night. Okay. Um, because... I, I think yeah. basically the, they were holding... I listened to the BBC interview, which was great. They were holding each other. They were crying. It was in a very emotional night. And they came to the kind of the conclude. <laughs> Look, I'm not trying to put them down in any way. Don't laugh at this. This is true. This is their real story. No, no, no. I'm just laughing because it was one of the most depressing nights of my life, too. Right. Everyone, there's over, lots of people who could be in that same position, right? You know, you know what's really messed up is I made plans to watch the election results with my best friend the night of... It was Tim M., the guy you were emailing about the vacations or whatever. Awesome. He's and probably in Yosemite right now. It probably, probably. And it was just the two of us. I brought over a bunch of food and we were going to just sit there and watch Hillary win the election. Um, and I wasn't the biggest Hillary fan in the world, but I was but like, you, all right. You let's, probably let's... had some Katy Perry queued up, like you were ready to run. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, let's just close out this win, okay? Let's end this chapter. Um, and uh, instead, we sat there in the dark in his living room watching like five hours of the most depressing television in my entire life. Um, so I can definitely relate to where Senator Batman was on that night. Um, if I had been with my wife instead of my best friend, maybe there would have been some tears and some some tearful embraces. Um, so the tearful embraces led to the realization on both their behalves that this was the person they wanted to spend the rest of their life with. And that's what led to the proposal and eventually the marriage. And I don't know if we can credit that moment for all of the great emails he sent in to us uh, ever since, but I think we probably should. What do you think? Yeah, <laughs> he's one of our best emailers and I'm very happy that they were able to kind of uh, extract some joy out of just a really shitty week in America. Um, so yeah, good for him. I, I think that's a that's a good note to end on. The only concern I have is if 2020 doesn't go the right way for them, are they going to have to double down and have a child? Like, is I, that... do have, I do have that concern also. It's like, it's not, let's not put too many of our eggs in the Mueller report basket just yet. But, um, you know, we'll see. Well, Andrew, on that note, we should probably wrap it up. I just want to thank everybody, especially the uh, Lantern repliers, but all our, our great listeners who are emailing in to openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com you guys are checking out the tournament this week or whatever else we want to hear your takes we want to hear your uh, questions comments and concerns we're also on apple Podcasts. search for us find our page by searching for open floor that's two words uh, when you get there scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy i'm on instagram at ben.goliver if you want to you know send in comments about appendages about marriage proposals about you know travels uh, to Antarctica, please be my guest. I'd love to hear from you. Andrew, we're also on the world famous radio.com. Until next week, 
I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy.